Welcome to Bits About Books, the home for conversations with authors of breakthrough books on sales, marketing and business. Founders, entrepreneurs and individual professionals, we all need to keep track of ideas that are helping create our today and tomorrow. Bits About Books will strive to find those books and speak to their authors, go behind the scenes and understand what inspired the authors to write the books that they did and how they went about doing so. Through our conversations, we hope to gain insights that will help us to get the most out of our efforts. I'm your host Shubhanjan Sarkar, founder of Pitchlink, the next generation buyer-seller engagement platform where our mission is to make buying easy. Welcome to Bits About Books. Thank you for your time and for joining us in this session. I have a favor to ask. While you continue to listen to the podcast, please leave a comment or rating at iTunes or wherever else you get your podcasts from. I personally look at each comment and will give you a shout out to each of you in our following episodes. It means a lot to hear from you. Our guest today is Peter Cohen and we speak with him about his new book, Doing Discovery, the single most important element of software sales and buyer enablement processes. Actually, I've been reviewing some discovery calls just very, very recently. And what was sent to me as a discovery call, which was uh, a 60-minute duration, the call lasted 60 minutes, approximately 10 minutes of that call were actual discovery questions. The first part was just, you know, the uh, getting to know you portion. There was about two minutes. It was about 10 minutes of discovery questions. And then the salesperson launched into a corporate slash product overview. And then he had a pre-sales resource with him. Uh, the pre-sales resource did about uh, 20 to 25 minutes of what they referred to as introductory demo. Uh, and then that closed out the meeting. So at that total hour, they just skimmed the surface of the discovery lake. They never dipped into it. They never explored the depths. They never measured the, the circumference. All they did was uh, touch their finger to the surface uh, move it around a little bit and then withdraw it to go talking about their products, their services, all about the vendor. Because so I just see that over and over and over again. We got to change the way that people uh, visualize discovery. We have to change the way that people actually execute discovery. Peter Cohen is the founder and principal of Second Derivative and the author of The Great Demo and Doing Discovery Methodologies, focused on helping software organizations improve their sales and marketing results primarily through improving organization's discovery and demonstration skills. The bulk of his experience is with complex enterprise software and strategic systems sold to varied audiences in a range of vertical markets. He has enjoyed roles in technical and product marketing, marketing management, pre-sales and pre-sales management, sales and sales management, senior management, and the C-suite, as well as serving on boards of directors. He has executed and delivered thousands of discovery conversations and demos and has been on the receiving end of thousands of discovery calls and demos from a broad variety of vendors around the world, from startups to the world's biggest software vendors and verticals, from accounting to zymology. In August 22, he published Doing Discovery, a methodology providing a structured approach to discovery for B2B software vendors. Let's dive right into this session with Peter Cohen. Peter, welcome to Bits Award Books. I'm delighted to have you back. Uh, I remember how much I enjoyed my last conversation. And uh, it's so nice that I'm able to talk to you as you publish your new book. It was a delightful conversation last time, and I'm looking forward to this one as well. You know, Peter, I, I wonder, 
the fundamentals of sales, which is defining your customer, what we call uh, ICP, understanding them, then understanding the process of discovery, which is not just a step so that you can quickly go to demo and then quickly finish your sales. Why is it that so little attention is paid to the fundamentals? That is an intriguing question and probably is the answer to the question, why did I write this book in the first place? Um, There's at least three contributing factors to explore here. Uh, One is where sales methodologies begin and end. Uh, Number two (laughs) has to do with um, what people know and what they don't know. And number three, I think, has to do with some of the changing uh, elements of the marketplace. So uh, which of those three would you like to start with? I will like to start with, even before that, Mm -hmm. when did you decide that it's time to write this book and what happened there? So I decided to start with, when did I decide to write write this book? Probably as long ago as about seven years, but it's taken me a while to uh, do the combination of actually pulling the trigger and getting it done and completing, if you will, the practices and testing them out to really make sure that what I was going to put onto uh, paper or virtual paper really is an approach um, that is going to be highly successful for people. So it did start about seven years ago. I started actually drafting material probably three or four years ago. Um, But a lot of this has simply been refinement, testing, executing, testing with organizations, with uh, with trainees, to really make sure that this was going to be an effective approach. Uh, I put uh, virtual pen to virtual paper um, in November and December, and I actually finished, I think, drafting everything towards the end of January, and then ended that, that long, painful portion of, of actually producing the book, um, getting it proofed, rolling it out to people to get their feedback, making changes. And uh, we released the paperback version on August 5th, just a week and a half ago. And the Kindle version followed rather crisply on August 11th. So there you are. Well, that's a, that's a great, uh, very specific and precise countdown. Uh, I'll, I'll still stick with that for a, for a bit. Uh, great demo was a sort of a watershed moment in sales books, I would say, because it it really hit upon a fundamental part of the process, which was, for the lack of a better word, broken uh, or mm-hmm. misunderstood. And I think you're flipping it in, in simple terms, just flipping that process uh, made it completely understandable. Uh, I'm obviously talking in very simplistic terms because I would like people to go and read the book and also listen to what we discussed last time. But uh, uh-huh. on, on a more serious note, when you started thinking it about it seven years back and, and when you actually started putting it together and, and starting uh, to create this framework, which you were testing, by the way, with your, uh, with your trainees, what what were you actually seeing and what, what were those triggers? The uh, Let me answer this in the form of a great story. So I was having a conversation with a head of sales, a CRO, chief revenue officer, um, a number of years ago. And we were moderately deep into the conversation. And at one point I asked him, I said, what percent of your salespeople would you say um, 
are skilled at doing discovery, are sufficiently skilled at doing discovery. And he says uh, 80%, excuse me, he says 20%. And I thought about that for a moment. And then I jokingly and seriously said, what percent of your sales folks think they do a good job with discovery, but you know they actually don't? (laughs) He says, hang on, let me close my door, (laughs) which is a wonderful thing. And I hear this ka-chunk sound. And then he comes back and he says, uh, I'd say that a good 80% of that remaining population believe they do a good job in discovery, but I know they actually don't. Um, and to give an example that I, I was reviewing, um, actually, I've been reviewing some discovery calls just very, very recently of the gong recordings and so forth. And what was sent to me as a discovery call, which was uh, a 60-minute duration, the call lasted 60 minutes, approximately 10 minutes of that call were actual discovery questions. Uh, the first part was just, you know, the uh, getting to know you portion. There was about two minutes. It was about 10 minutes of discovery questions. And then what do you think the balance of that uh, 48 minutes uh, comprised? The salesperson talking about the product. You got it. The salesperson launched into a corporate slash product overview, and then he had a pre-sales resource with him. Uh, the pre-sales resource did about uh, 20 to 25 minutes of what they referred to as introductory demo, uh, and then that closed out the meeting. So at that total hour, they just skimmed the surface of the discovery lake. They never dipped into it. They never explored the depths. They never measured the, the circumference. All they did was uh, touch their finger to the surface, uh, move it around a little bit, and then withdraw it to go talking about their products, their services, all about the vendor. Um, That's one of the contributing factors. I just see that over and over and over again that caused me to say, you know what? We have to write this book. Or I should say, I have to write this book. We have to get it published. we got to change the way that people uh, visualize discovery. We have to change the way that people actually execute discovery. Uh, I can totally, totally see this. And uh, in fact, it would be great if we did another chat uh, about why it is so. Because I think it's such an important point. Why is it people who are in the profession doing this over and over in the name of discovery? Yeah. And and I think there's, as I said, there's several contributing factors here. The, one of the first ones has to do with sales methodology training. Um, which tends to tell you what information needs to be captured. So, for example, Medic and MedPick um, are good examples of sales methodologies where people are told, here's the information you need to capture to feel that you have a qualified lead or you have a completed discovery. What they fail to do in the sales methodology training sessions has addressed two other major questions. Number one, why should you or do you need to collect this information? And number two, how to actually execute that process. So doing discovery as a book really is designed to, in a certain sense, pick up where sales methodology training stops and answer the question, okay, why is doing discovery so important? What what are we trying, you know, what is the rationale for doing it? And then what are the, um, uh, the specific pieces of information you need and should collect? And then how do you actually execute? And it's the how that has truly been missing in the industry. Uh, it's taught anecdotally. It's taught by um, 
uh, ride-alongs by one new person with a more seasoned veteran. And so what you have is, is a, uh, a system that is really based on, uh, it's just based on nothing structured. <laughs> so this was an attempt, and hopefully a good attempt, to provide a structured approach to the why, the what, and the how of doing discovery. How's that? That's great. Again, I just want to dig a bit before we go to the book. When you started observing this, like like your last book, when you were observing the demo process and you and you said that something is broken here and it this is what is broken. So it it it, it observation followed by analysis followed by uh, coming up with a prescriptive uh, solution. Mm-hmm. What what were you seeing was wrong? I mean, what you just demonst- what you yeah. just told was a demonstration of what was wrong. But what was what was it that you figured needs fixing? Is, is it the understanding? Is it the approach? Is it the training? Where was it? It was, it's the lack of, it's really very simple. It's the lack of understanding of what discovery actually is. Um, let me give two sets of examples here. Um, we've delivered hundreds of great demo workshops over the years. Um, now almost approaching 20 years of, of delivering great demo training. And in the course of workshops, we touch on some of the key elements of discovery information that needs to be captured in order to put together and deliver a credible and successful demonstration. Uh, In those workshops, we also touch on how to collect, how to collect some of that information. But what we really recognize and what our customers recognize is that in a certain way, we've been operating backwards. So we've been teaching people how to do uh, better demos. We've been teaching them demonstration skills with an assumption that they also know how to get the discovery information that is required or necessary to produce those demos. But over and over and over again, we would see people struggle through the process of actually collecting that information. And we would go back and then begin to provide the discovery skills training on how to actually get that information so they can deliver the demo. So that was that was data point number one. Data point number two, um, I and the team will watch probably hundreds of recordings of demos and now more and more uh, discovery conversations with our prospects as a process of um, getting ready for any type of a workshop. So we'll typically say, hey, you know, send me a couple examples of some of your best performers doing discovery and demos and a couple examples of some average performers so we can actually take a look at a spectrum. And what I would see over and over and over with the demos is that there was either no discovery done or it was so little as to be laughable. And then as I just referenced, uh, this discovery call example was, uh, well, one-sixth, <laughs> 10 minutes out of 60, one-sixth of the call was actual discovery. The rest was all the vendor doing their traditional blah, blah, blah. So those were key indicators that there needs to be a change. People don't know what they don't know <laughs> about discovery. And that then precipitated the training sessions, which then precipitated the book. Right, right. So, so... Was there something that you were jotting down as this is going on? What was your process? Were you writing blog posts around what you were watching? Or was it something like which was going into your back of your head saying, no, I think this is these are the things which which need to be sort of, uh, you know, elaborated or thought of? Well, this this goes back. uh, This goes back a long ways. So um, 
it is, uh, we'll set the stage. It's 1992. I'm working and living in uh, Basel, Switzerland, uh, working for a software company that makes software for the pharmaceutical research in- industry. Um, and I would, I would get on a tram in town and go visit three of the, the world's biggest pharmaceutical companies. And when I would come back from some of these, these visits with customers, would sit down with, with uh, our head of sales, a very, very wise guy, Hans Rudi Kotman, and he would ask me questions about what I learned. And at the end of almost all of these conversations, they were all you know sales strategy conversations. He would say, and I love this phrase, he would say, we need more information. And then we begin to, to detail exactly what we needed. And as I went through this process and then went into my own direct sales role um, in the Western half of, of the United States selling to biotechs, I learned something very, very interesting. And that is the assumptions of salespeople about prospect needs and wants are exactly that, their assumptions. And even if you're right, you can be wrong. And let me explain what I mean by that. We had offerings that were very, very well suited um, for our prospects. However, we needed, um, it was a, uh, a mix and match type of a thing. We had a series of, of data sources and we needed to be able to propose and suggest to our prospects, here are the five data sources you need. You don't need these other three over here, but these two, in fact, are critical, and the other three I strongly recommend. Well, in order to do that, we really needed to understand their businesses rather intimately. And biotechs um, are a very interesting entity because each of them has their secret sauce of uh, of what makes them unique, what makes them special, and what gives them competitive uh, strengths in the marketplace. And the one thing they wanted you to ask them was – Tell me about what makes you special as a biotech. And if you if you offered that question, they would they would get excited. They would get up in front of a whiteboard. They teach you all about their science. They would talk and talk and talk. What a delight! And what I learned from this was I needed to have a plan. Uh, doing discovery need I basically I needed to have a structured approach so that I could make sure that I went through the information pieces that I needed to capture to be able to propose a solution that was really a best fit for each of those individual biotechs. Those, that process turned into a discovery document, which effectively was a collection of prompts, um, short words or word phrases that would remind me in the conversation to ask them about X, Y, or Z. And as I went through my discovery conversations with these folks, and I filled out these documents effectively by answering my own prompts in the form of question to the prospects, I realized that this approach was extraordinarily successful in making the prospects feel that I had understood them sufficiently to be able to provide the kind of proposals and suggestions that fit them very, very well. And for me to know that I had done exactly the same thing, that I I had collected enough information to be in a position where I could actually propose precise solutions. So that discovery document concept is something that I began to evolve as I uh, went from company to company and then founded the great demo business. And that's what then led to, if you will, the structured approach that we then taught in workshops and finally led to the book, which is based on exactly that same idea. You got to know where you're going 
if you're going to expect to get to your destination. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. And this is a great point to dive into the book and, and dive back where we, where we sort of started this conversation, which is why is it so little is focused on the fundamentals of sales? Or the fundamentals of discovery in sales. I don't know. <laughs> um, I actually, I spent quite a bit of time looking through, you know, the world of Amazon to see what else was out there in discovery. And as I said, sales methodologies touch on it. They will often say, here's information you need to collect at a very, very high level. Words like, uh, what's the impact? <laughs> what's the value? But Rarely, if ever, do they actually articulate uh, methods of, of getting that information and how to do it. Um, that's what really, again, that was one of the major driving forces for writing the book. Um, let me share with you, this is kind of fun. When, I get, when I'm working now with audiences, I've, I've laid out seven levels of uh, discovery skills. And one of the most enjoyable things to do is to, to share those seven levels with people and ask, where do you think you and your teams are? And, and the answers for most people are somewhere around levels two through four <laughs> out of seven levels, which tells you the size of the gap. And it's a huge gap. Um, I'll give you a small but very, very important example. How often do you think uh, vendors actually uncover tangible numbers for value my my gut level feeling is it will be something around 10 to 15 percent but i don't yeah know. It's, i think you're right you're right about in that um in the range i listened to dozens and dozens of discovery conversations it's probably five to ten percent where actual even the topic comes up and fewer where tangible concrete numbers are actually uncovered and used and that to me is is just it's frightening because the lack of that information the lack of value information that the prospect can use to sell internally is probably one of the most debilitating aspects of insufficient discovery does that does that all resonate uh, absolutely absolutely and 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 let's let's elaborate on this uh, how does i mean obviously i'm i'm sure a part of the answer of how to do it is is in the book, uh, and and it's part of your framework. Uh, let, let's let's connect this to that, and 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 let's uh, let's explore where where it takes us. Yeah. Um, well, let's do let's do it this way. Um, let's say that um, you are a doctor, and uh, a patient comes to you, and I'm a patient. I come to you, and I say, I've got a pain in my side, and it hurts. All right. What? What would you expect a good doctor to do at this point? What would, let's do it the other way. What would you expect a bad doctor to do at this point? I say, I've got a pain in my side and it hurts. What would a bad doctor do? He will, he will write a name of a pill and say, why don't you take this? This should fix it in three days. If it not, come back to it. Fix it in three days, right. Well, or worse, the doctor says, oh, let's, let's get you into surgery right away and open you <laughs> up and take a look. <laughs> well, that's, that's known in the world of medicine. That's known as malpractice, right? Yeah. Well, a good doctor is going to start asking some questions. So how long have you had that? And, and it's interesting the kinds of questions they start off with. So They'll ask questions like, how long have you had the pain? Uh, where is it? Um, you know, give me the dimensions. Is it deep? Is it constant? Does it throb? Is it occasional? So what they're doing there is moving from level one, which is uncovering the statement of pain, 
to level two, which is exploring pain more deeply. So that's what a doctor does, and they do it naturally. The next level is uh, basically understanding the impact of the pain. So if you're a doctor, you know, somebody could have a pain and it's, and it's caused by, by gas in the gut or the bowel, and it's going to go away. Um, maybe it recurs because of eating habits or whatsoever, but does it impact anything? Mm, maybe not. Um, conversely, it may be a pain that is, you know, perhaps it's muscle-based or organ-based. And when the, uh, the patient tries to raise his or her arm, it's too painful even to do so. Okay, now we've uncovered an impact, uh, impact statement. So it's keeping you from driving. It's keeping you from uh, showering comfortably. Okay, this is looking more serious. So that's level three where we've, we've uncovered the pain. We've explored it more deep, deeply. And we're intrigued and interested in the impact that this pain has potentially on other related systems. So let me pause there and ask, is this, is this all resonating? Absolutely. It, it makes complete sense. So number four is quantifying that pain. And this is something doctors will do. They have, you've seen those charts of uh, pain from, you know, I, can, it's, I don't notice at all to this is completely consuming my life and it's nothing but tears and pain. So they have a 10-point scale for people to identify how painful this is, either on a, you know occasional basis where it could spikes or on a steady basis. We need to do the same thing in the world discovery with software. We need to quantify the pain in terms of time, people, and money that's associated with making the change or is holding them back. So that's, that's level four. It's time for a short break. Stay with us. After the break. Today, there's an enormous amount of discussion on how prospects come to the, into the sales process way far into their process. Some people will say, I don't know what it ever is, 50%, 70%, 57%. However, prospects don't know what they don't know. And to give you an example of that, they may do you know, a ton of research on the web for a particular soft, uh, set of offerings. But if they haven't had a conversation with a vendor, it's highly unlikely that they know all the nuances or they've been exposed to all the kinds of capabilities that are possible. After all, most vendors don't reveal all the capabilities that are available, in, particularly in complex software, um, publicly, because it's a competitive differentiator. They don't want people to copy and, and, and on and on. So only through a conversation with a vendor, conversation with a vendor, can the vendor determine whether or not the prospect even knows what all is possible with the offering. You are listening to a Business Podcast Network original. Podcasting is the fastest growing content marketing opportunity, which is untapped. We can help you craft your audio strategy and help leverage the wide reach and easy streaming capability that the smartphone penetration provides. It is easy, it is powerful and personal. Talk to us to find out how podcasting can help you build your brand and reach out to your targets like never before. Write to us at bpn at bizcast.in that is bpn at biz C-A-S-T dot I-N. Business Podcast Network. Podcasts end to end. Welcome back. I'm Shubhanjan Sarkar, your host for Bits About Books and founder of Pitchlink, the buyer-seller engagement platform. 
Let's dive right back into the episode where we left it. Level five is an interesting one, and I'm not sure that it applies to the world of medicine. Um, it's called re-engineering vision, vision re-engineering. And this has to do with, um, this is actually a very interesting subtopic. Today, there's an enormous amount of discussion on how prospects come to the into the sales process, which frankly is a buying process, but that's enough topic for another whole book. <laughs> but the prospects come to the sales process way far into their process. Some people will say, I don't know what it ever is, 50%, 70%, 57%. However, prospects don't know what they don't know. And to give you an example of that, they may do you know, a ton of research on the web for a particular soft, uh, set of offerings. But if they haven't had a conversation with a vendor, it's highly unlikely that they know all the nuances or they've been exposed to all the kinds of capabilities that are possible. After all, most vendors don't review all the capabilities that are available, in, particularly in complex software, um, publicly because it's a competitive differentiator. They don't want people to copy and, and, and on and on. So only through a conversation with a vendor, conversation with a vendor, can the vendor determine whether or not the prospect even knows what all is possible with the offering. Vision reengineering is a process of helping the prospect realize that more or different ways might be possible solving a problem, accomplishing a task, getting an alert whatsoever. Um, would, would you like a small example of this? Yes, of course. So imagine that you are trying to manage, um, uh, you've been basically running a, a CRM system using Excel. Okay, so you're managing your forecast, you're managing your pipeline, you're managing your key deals using Excel, which a lot of us have done <laughs> over the years. Um, and you suddenly realize, you know what, Excel is I too many errors, it's a manual process, I don't have insight into important things that I'd like to have insight to. So I, you reach out to a vendor, and the vendor, in a good vendor scenario, asks questions about what's going on today, um, how are you tracking this information, and so on. The vendor says, so you're using Excel, I see. Um, how important is it, the vendor asks, for you to be able to get easy access into each individual critical deal for this quarter and, and the pipeline for the next to see where those deals are, you know, what's the status, uh, what steps have been executed and so forth. And the uh, prospect says it's very important. Um, it's something that I have to do manually today. I have to actually go and call up the reps and, and ask. Well, the, the vendor realizes that the prospect has no idea that in a tool like Zoho or HubSpot or Salesforce or whatsoever, um, all you'd need to do is click and drill down a couple of levels to access that information. If they've never seen that that was possible, they don't know that it's that it, they don't know what they don't know. It's not they don't know that it's available. Vision reengineering then is the process of saying, "Dear Mr. Prospect, would it be interesting or useful if you had the capability to right from a summary screen click on an individual deal drill down to see exactly what sales stages have been completed what were the action items that are still open what were the last conversations prospect says wow i had no idea that was possible the vendor says well we have that capability would you like to for us to include it in the demo prospect says yes please what you've just done 
is re-engineered that prospect's vision to include that particular capability. And the wise vendor will look for, seek out opportunities to re-engineer vision uh, where it is, where they have competitive strengths in particular over their competition. So that's vision re-engineering. If that, if you will, is, is level five. Very few people even understand that concept uh, and even fewer are actually skilled at doing it. So let me just pause there and see how that resonates. Yeah, this is great. And and as you are speaking, and I, I'm thinking of actual scenarios which which you are talking of, I can see how this will get diluted and got and and get pushed into that discovery call where 50 minutes the pre-sales guys will come and start showing it around. So so I can totally see how how the nuanced value will be completely destroyed in a normal process. Yeah, and this is a, but wait, there's more. I cannot tell you how many organizations use discovery on the fly as a uh, as a as an attempted replacement for doing real discovery. Hmm. Uh, discovery on the fly could be defined as, I'm going to show you a demo, and as I go through the demo, I will occasionally ask you, is this something that looks interesting to you? <laughs> And how do you do this today? Um, that is the typical. Um, that's the typical mode of doing discovery on the fly. And discovery on the fly has its place, but there are several major risks um, which we could go into. And, and this is pulling some ideas right out of the book. Are you? Should we explore this? Absolutely, absolutely. So discovery on the fly. Number one, the single biggest risk is buying it back. Buying it back is where you are presenting capabilities in your offering. You're showing the prospect capabilities from your offering that they don't feel they need. And the more capabilities that you show them that they don't feel they need, the more likely when it's time to negotiate that license agreement and that price, they're going to say what? Okay, no need of these stuff. Why don't we bring the price down? Yeah, exactly. We're not going to use those capabilities, so we don't want to pay for them. Now, this is a really weird thing about software because everybody is comfortable with the idea that there are capabilities that we will never use. But when you flog the prospect with them and say, show them, that's when they begin to rebel and say, you know, I don't want to pay for that stuff. So buying it back is the phrase. And that's one of the, the key risks of discovery on the fly. The second is that you're bound to the software. It's very difficult to take the conversation to all the other areas of the discovery space that really need to be explored. So while you're looking at, at the detailed screen and software, what happens is you get pulled into the weeds in the conversation. The prospect says, hey, I noticed you've got a color palette there. Can, you, can that color palette be changed? Okay, great. You're going to spend the next five minutes talking about changing the colors for that that particular element. What you should have been talking about is impact, related pains, other environment, cultural attributes. None of that stuff can be explored when you're stuck looking at the software. So discovery on the fly has its, its uses, if you will, but it should be used cautiously. And, and vision generation demos are one of the areas where that could be used in a very, very structured way. Anyway, so that's where vision re-engineering can help come in. Instead of doing discovery on the fly, do discovery for real. <laughs> mm, absolutely. So we are now we're in level five, right? 
Correct. We're level five. So level six is so everything up through level five is making the assumption that uh, your audience, your prospects are fairly homogeneous mm. and they're not. They're absolutely not. And just to give you two examples, um, if we look at uh, the technology adoption curve and the nature of prospects as individuals or as organizations at different points of the technology adoption curve, you've got wildly varying cultures and wildly varying types of people you have to deal with with respect to discovery. So, for example, um, technology, uh, the innovator side of the curve or early adopters, let's talk about early adopters. Early adopters are early adopters because they want a competitive advantage. They're willing to accept a fair amount of risk to be first or to be a, fa first, a fast follower. And discovery for them um, needs to be uh, couched with those kinds of outcomes in mind. Um, which means you've got to be very, very careful with the early adopter about a planned implementation, value realization events, and, and how this thing is going to go forward effectively. Now, conversely, if you're talking to early majority prospects, you know, they recognize they need to make a change. They want to be cautious. They want to do it well. This is where discovery in its richest form needs to take place. As you move further and further to the right, you get to the late majority. You know, you're going to be doing a lot more discovery um, in terms of understanding their cultures, understanding their uh, their uh, internal methods of how they want to adapt, how they want to change implementation pathways and so forth. Um, that's one angle, if you will, is the technology adoption curve. A second example that I love to offer are burn victims. So burn victims being uh, people or organizations uh, for whom an implementation did not go well. <laughs> so um, remember the days of Siebel? Yeah. So if I recall correctly, there, Siebel was, the, was probably the first big, for the audience, the first big uh, and major success with CRM systems. However, their implementations were about as heavy and thick as one could ever imagine. And there were, there were numerous businesses that would, in a virtual sense, follow Siebel salespeople around to clean up the messes of implementation. Um, many, many burn victims. Siebel implementations that took too long, they went over cost, they didn't yield the results that were wanted. Well, those people and those organizations are burn victims. And you, if you encounter a burn victim, there are specific things one needs to do in discovery um, before you'll ever make any progress in a, in a, a, towards a sale. They need to feel that you have heard and understand, excuse me, heard and understood what happened previously in excellent detail to make sure that that same pathway doesn't get tread again in the future. So burn victims are another example of, of if you will, level six wherein you're applying these skills and these, these processes, these discovery methods, discovery methodology to the broad range of different types of scenarios that you could expect to encounter in an, in an industry. And those are those two parameters, uh, technology adoption curve uh, positions, if you will, and bird victims are perfect examples of, of where that applies. Right. And, and how many organizations where you are doing training do you see actually operating at this level? Very. So now we're talking about the one in a thousand. 
Mm. <laughs> I mean, we, we literally yeah. are. There are th what's really interesting. Um, some of the world's best salespeople are best because they're naturals at doing discovery. And if you ask them to uh, to tell others how they do it and what they're doing and why they do it, they would probably say something like, I can't, I just do it. I just execute it. I can't tell you what I'm doing. I just know this is the right way to go. These people are natural doctors. They would, they would be good in any industry where you need to understand somebody's situation. They would be the world's best waiters in restaurants, for example. They would be the world's best doctors. They're the best consultative salespeople. Um, but they're, they're literally, it's probably higher numbers than this, but I would say they're probably literally one in a hundred or one in a thousand. What, what's your experience? These are the eagles, the naturals. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's it's very rare, actually. I mean, and 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 it's it'll be like very, uh, for the lack of a better word, uh, stupid to think that your entire team can behave like that. Yeah, and and asking those people, the naturals, to try to train others um, is just a it's an impossibility because they don't know, they cannot articulate what they're doing. They just know, they just do it. Um, so, you know, doing discovery as a book, to a certain degree, is taking those experiences and putting it into a structured approach that people can then follow, that all of us can then follow. Right. And and that brings us to level seven. Is that is that where where we summit? We you know, I I I hope we summit and yet at the same time i suspect that the, there are other mountains that are even higher but level seven is is i define level seven as doing discovery as a methodology hmm. and by methodology i mean something where you have an integrated set of skills so here's one way of looking at it um building a house um, building a structure requires a broad range of skills. Uh, there's plumbers, there's masons, there's people pouring concrete, there's people uh, doing siding, putting in wallboard, painting, glass, and so forth. Um, each of those, uh, each of those subdisciplines has a set of skills associated with it. Um, I'm always amazed to watch, you know, how people lay concrete. It's, it's absolutely fascinating to me, and it's something that I do not know how to do methodology tells you when and how to apply these sets of skills. So for example, imagine if somebody built a house by starting with the roof. Well, that's gonna be kind of tough because there's no walls in place. <laughs> and similarly, what if you put up the walls before you, put, you built a foundation? Or what if you, you poured the concrete before you actually put in the plumbing, the electrical? Methodology provides you with an integrated, cohesive approach in terms of timing, when to apply which skills at what point, and, and related. Methodology enables enablement. Let me say that again differently. And methodology enables um, somebody to be able to understand what actions need to take place in what order, and then how to coach people to achieve high levels of performance. So that's what I mean by methodology enables enablement. It enables enablement folks to say, okay, these guys are really, really strong, or this person's particularly strong in uncovering pain. This person's very, very strong in actually getting impact statements and mapping that out. Neither of them are particularly strong in uncovering value. Let's help these people focus on uncovering value to help them help their prospects move their deals forward, for example. So operating 
as a methodology where you've got a broad set of skills that you can put into play with the right timing, the right order, and with the knowledge of what needs to happen in order to complete, if you will, the discovery document, discovery picture. Does that help? Yeah, yeah. So I'm, as, as you're speaking, I'm thinking that you are, what you're literally describing is uh, what we, in other contexts, talk about mental models, right? Uh, yeah, exactly that. So it is, it is just resonating with me in that form that you, you get a framework and you, and you apply it. And it, when you look through that framework, you know, A, where you are and at that point, what you need to do. Uh, and, and of course, those nuances, like some people will be better at some stage and so on. So how do you sort of bring, bring in multiple, uh, multiple capabilities I don't want to use, I'm very tempted, but don't want to say multiple intelligences, but it's really, that's what it is. Skills, skills and skill sets. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And how do you sort of uh, combine those into an output for a given given account uh, or, or, or a given customer? Yeah, I think the, the analogy of building a house and a contractor is a really, really good one. A contractor, a skilled contractor probably knows each of the individual sets of skills yeah. at a reasonable level. Contractor has yeah. probably done many of those. Yeah, yeah. Uh, they know how to saw, they know how to hammer, they know how to paint, they know how to put in drywall, they know how to plumb. Um, what the contractor knows, however, that's most important is the ordering of each of these sets of skills. Um, it would be a disaster to engage the painters before you have the drywall in, <laughs> for example. Then you're yeah. painting uh, you're painting wood walls and that or wood uh, framing and that's it. So methodology again is taking all these skills and aligning them, placing them in the right context, executing them at the right timing and related. So Peter, I have a question. Uh, you know, when we spoke about the great demo, the book and the methodology there, I could see pretty much any company using those ideas when i say any mm-hmm. company i mean the size and the and the and the nature of the product independent of the complexity of what they do right is this book applicable to more large enterprises selling more complex uh, uh, complex uh, products what's your thought so i would say generally speaking yes however Everything else being equal, the vendor that is perceived as doing a better job with discovery is in a competitively advantageous position. Now, I want to make a, um, I'm actually doing a talk in a couple of weeks here um, where I'm going to talk about this in a little bit more detail. But you can think in terms of two types of buying hmm. um, buying of tools versus buying of solutions. Yeah. Um, for example, when I was when I was back with another organization, uh, I had a team of engineers that reported to me. I didn't know their jobs at all. They came to me and said, "We need uh, we need a CAD tool for us to do our jobs." And they specifically said, "We want SolidWorks." And I went great, and I went out and I bought twenty copies of SolidWorks. And all I was interested in, in terms of the conversation with the rep was to get the best deal and to know I was buying the right thing. Mm. <laughs> that was it. I had been given, basically been told by my team, hey, Cohen, we need 20 copies of, of SolidWorks. Um, you're the boss. Can you go out and buy it for us? And I said, absolutely. So tools, buying tools, um, stuff that's going to sit on your laptop, things that are comparatively low cost, 
Um, that does not, generally speaking, require any substantial discovery if you already know what you want and how to go about getting it. As you do get more complex, um, this is where more and more of the discovery principles apply. Now, that being said, I have a specific chapter or section of the book where I talk about doing discovery for uh, transactional sales processes. So the interesting thing here is that for many software vendors, they'll have the um, their smallest deals. They may call them um, mid-market. They may call them SMB. SMB is fairly typical. And those deals for the vendor might be $10,000, $30,000 know, annual revenues, for example. However, and as a result, the vendor looks at that as you know, a small deal. We give our, um, our junior level people, uh, junior level salespeople execute these deals. And it's a small portion, but it's, you know, it's, as an aggregate, it's important for the business we need to cover. What's interesting to me is the perception of the prospects. Because for many of these prospects, if they're buying, for example, an ERP system or something that they're going to hang their entire business off, yeah, it's only $20,000 a year for the vendor, but it's $20,000 a year for the prospect that's a huge piece of their budget. And if this doesn't work, it could mean the end of their business. So there's this huge disconnect in many cases between traditional SMB sales teams and the prospects' perceptions of how important this is. So one of the topics in the book is how to apply many of these this, these, this discovery methodology for scenarios where you're selling what for you is a low-priced offering but your prospect sees it as a key component and a critical, important component for their businesses. Yeah, I can totally see. Because like you described, I mean, if you're doing an impact assessment, you should be able to figure that out, right? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, I was uh, one of my one of my my long term customers is somebody that uh, does what you might call non has he has software for non standard lending. <laughs> it's a very interesting marketplace. Um, and his customers, when, when they buy into his offering, they're, they're hanging their futures on the success or failure of his offering in their hands. Um, and his, you know, his sales are anywhere from about $20,000 um, to $100,000 a year for his prospects. They really, I mean, they agonize. His prospects agonize over you know, pursuing this as a solution because they know that if it goes poorly, it likely is the end of their businesses. So this is a huge issue. Um, but you know, to generally answer your question, I would say the more complex your offering, the less product-led it is, um, the more you really need to dive into doing discovery. I totally agree. Uh, how do you prepare well with the questions that you want to ask at each of these stages? I mean, obviously, it will be different for different companies and possibly different for different kinds of uh prospects that you're talking to? Yeah. So very, very simply, um, two sets of things. Number one, you got to know where you're going to go. And by that, I mean, you need to have a discovery document, a, a uh, something that tells you here are the questions or the topics you need to cover, not necessarily the questions you need to ask, but the topics you need to cover in your discovery conversation to know that you've gotten a sufficient amount of information. And so your prospect feels that they've been heard adequately. So number one is, is knowing to, what the destination looks like, what a completed discovery document should look like. 
Um, and then number two is actually the process of, and the timing and flow of asking those questions. And let me give you a small example of this. Um, with the exception of most executives, um, middle managers, or I'd say managers, yeah, middle managers and below are generally uncomfortable talking about their major pain in depth at the beginning of a conversation. And to a certain degree, I likened this, let's go back to our, our doctor example, um, because you don't go directly from your car into um, a meeting with a doctor. There are several intermediary steps that kind of move you emotionally into the, the process where you're actually comfortable admitting pain and talking about it openly. Yeah. So when you go to, you go to a doctor's office, um, the first thing they make you do, if, if it isn't an online system today, is they make you fill out those terrible forms of your history, are you on any medication, um, anything else going on, any fan, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And it's, it's often thick forms, two or three or four pages that you have to fill out. Well, guess what? That's demographic, demographic information that is easy to ask and easy to answer and is designed to move this patient gently towards a more uh, substantive conversation. And you fill out that form you completed, you hand it in, you still don't get to see the doctor right away. They take you to a nurse's station where the nurse takes your vitals. So they you know, open your mouth, uh, we're gonna take your temperature, we're gonna take your blood pressure, we're gonna weigh you. There may be one or two other things that you do. And again, demographics. These are things that are easy to assess and easy to report. And again, they're moving this patient towards uh, the discussion about real pain. We can do and we should do, and this is outlined in the methodology, the same type of things when we're having a discovery conversation with a prospect. We don't start off necessarily, again, with the exception of certain folks like executives, by asking about the pain, but instead, tell me about your team. How many folks? Where are they located? Tell me about the processes. All of these things are designed to get your prospect speaking comfortably and to begin to build a conversation relationship with you, the vendor, so that when you do begin to ask about pain, the prospect is willing, they're open, and they're sharing information uh, richly, if you will, at that point. So that's, that's part of what this book is laying out. Bits About Books is brought to you by Pitchlink, the buyer-seller engagement platform. Pitchlink makes buying easy by enabling high-quality engagement between buyers and sellers through its presentation and discussion modules. Sellers create customized sales narratives using sales collaterals and personal videos and reach out to prospects through a non-intrusive buyer-qualified engagement. Pitchlink requires no installation or download and holds the entire repository of sales collaterals and buyer-seller conversations. Talk to us to know more about how you can engage with customers without intuition. Call us on 990216312. When I speak to people and, and I talk to a lot of uh, people in the sales space, as you would imagine, my observation is either people are lazy, so they'll take an idea, but really not do the job that you're supposed to do with that idea. Uh, and 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 most of the time when I look at frameworks and I talk about frameworks to people, that's what I see, that when you're applying it, you're not doing the nuanced stuff that actually adds the, uh, adds, adds the value. You are, you are mm -hmm. more in the mode of checking boxes. Uh, 
This is, you're absolutely correct. And, you know, again, this is, I think, one of the critical differences between the naturals that we were talking about earlier and the average rep. The average rep is pretending to check boxes. Yeah, I did that. I did that. I did that. I got all that. I did discovery. I did 10 minutes of discovery in an hour conversation. Well, wait a minute. Wait a minute. You did 10 minutes of discovery. What did you use the rest of the time with? Oh, I told him about our company. I did the product overview. And then we did a demo. Oh, so you did 10 minutes of discovery in an hour call. Whereas the natural does an hour's worth of discovery in an, in a, in an hour's call. And yet still provides the quid pro quos. That, the, that make the prospect feel like he or she is getting something in return on, uh, during that same conversation. Yeah, this is people, that again is, is the part of the point behind this book is to provide people with a structured approach, a template that they can begin to follow. And the smart people, I'm just be blunt, the smart people are going to recognize that for particularly for complex products, if you're in a marketplace where you've got multiple vendors each with offerings that are considered to be, you know, nuanced compared to one another, the vendor that is perceived by the prospect as doing a superior job in discovery is in a competitively advantageous position. And that's it. That is huge. Yeah, I totally agree because that's where, I mean, trust comes from respect and respect comes from the feeling that, okay, this guy is actually understanding where I'm going. Having been heard. Having been heard. Absolutely. Peter, this was wonderful as, as expected. Thank you so much. And uh, I hope to talk to you again soon. Pleasure was truly mine. We have a fantastic lineup over the next couple of episodes with great conversations on breakthrough books. Subscribe in your favorite podcast app so you do not miss a single episode. Thanks for listening. Thank you for being with us today on Bits About Books, where we talk to authors about breakthrough books on sales, marketing, and business. We hope this conversation helped inform and motivate as we all navigate a rapidly changing business environment. For us, these are enlightening conversations enriched with knowledge and expertise. We encourage you to go out and buy the book to learn firsthand and implement some of the great ideas we discussed today. We hope to have you with us again in the next exciting episode of Bits About Books. If you liked what you heard, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast platforms like iTunes, Google Play, Spotify or wherever else you get your podcasts from and give us a rating while you are at it. This BizCast original podcast is produced for PitchLink, the next generation buyer-seller engagement platform where the mission is to make buying easy. Hosted by Subhanjan Sarkar and produced by Rajiv Aditya. See you next time and have a wonderful day.